One of the biggest surprises and one of the things that made doing this research such fun is that I think people have an image of suffragists as being, oh, kind of grim, battle axes, dressed in black, serious, uh, no fun to be with, just always their eye on getting the vote and um, you know, not, not much fun to be around. And what I was so tickled to discover is that these women had a real sense of humor. That was historian Susan Ware talking about the suffragists who fought the long, hard battle to get American women the vote. Some of them, like Susan B. Anthony, are famous. Others are barely remembered or long forgotten but all deserve to have their stories told. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Susan Ware is a pioneer in the field of women's history and feminist biography. She's taught history at Harvard, Tufts, MIT, and NYU. And she's written books about everything from women in the New Deal to Billie Jean King and the revolution in women's sports. Her most recent book is Why They Marched, untold stories of the women who fought for the right to vote. Listen and learn as Susan Ware tells us why the women who fought for suffrage are some of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm speaking today to historian Susan Ware, and we're going to be talking about the history of women's equal rights and suffrage in the United States. Welcome, Susan. It's wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Susan, you know, we recently marked the anniversary of the Women's Rights Convention uh, that took place in Seneca Falls all those 174 years ago, and soon we're going to be celebrating the ratification of the 19th Amendment. In your latest book, why they marched, you tell the untold story of women who changed suffrage history. Can you talk a little bit about some of these women and tell us a little bit about who they were and what we might not know about them that would be helpful to know? Well, it's, it's always hard for a historian to answer a question of what we might know, because I'm never quite sure what people actually do know about the history of women's suffrage. And you know, of course, for someone like me, who's steeped in the history, uh, it's it's a somewhat different take. But I would say that um, one of the things that really attracts me about the story of the history of, of women's suffrage is the chance to really engage with a wide range of characters, um, women as well as men, all black, white, all across the country. And to think about placing their contributions and the passion that they brought for this movement, um, being able to bring that to new audiences. Uh, and so I sort of assume that we're starting pretty much with zero. I hope people know who Susan B. Anthony is uh, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, but not much beyond that. And I think at the top of my list of the activists who were involved in this um, long, long movement um, that I would want to foreground are the African-American women. 
who were so central to the story, but often have been marginalized uh, in some of the early histories that were written and are certainly not well known. And there are three uh, from my book that just stand out. Uh, The first is Sojourner Truth, who shows us the links between the early women's rights movement, as in the Seneca Falls Convention, and the abolition movement. And those two movements were very much in conversation with each other in the 1830s and 40s. And then when we move into the post-Civil War period, uh, the two women I would single out are Ida B. Wells, also known as Ida Wells Barnett, and Mary Church Terrell. And Wells is known especially for her activism anti-lynching, on anti-lynching, but she was a very avid suffragist, uh, as was Mary Church Terrell, who was very involved in the Black women's uh, club movement. And what is I find so interesting about these African-American women is that their story is a part of a much larger story, which is about voting rights in the United States, not just for women, but for uh, Black citizens, especially in the years after uh, the Civil War, after Reconstruction, when those rights are removed from Black men because of Jim Crow legislation. And for African-American women, they never had the luxury of just having a narrow focus on the vote for women. It was always part of a larger struggle, which was voting rights for African-Americans as well as women. And that was true of a lot of the other suffragists. It was never just about the vote. Uh, They had a whole range of reforms and changes they wanted to make, but they decided that the vote was an important step that they needed to get. And how interesting that here we are in 2022, still talking about voting rights and the larger landscape, as you put it. With with a new urgency, I'm afraid. (laughs) Exactly right. You know, you mentioned uh, the three suffragists uh, just now. Uh, Are they among the the ones who've most inspired you by their their life stories, their incredible life stories, or is there perhaps another? Well, I, I'm inspired by their how they were in it for the long haul. And that was actually true of many of the suffragists. Remember, this movement went on for three generations. Uh, it took a long time for women to get the vote. But, you know, if I had to pick a favorite, uh, it would probably be a woman who really just did one thing for suffrage, but it was really quite amazing. And it was a woman named Claiborne Catlin. And she is someone that is just an ordinary woman trying to make her way. And in she's living in Massachusetts. And in 1913 or 14, she decides that she is going to ride a horse across the state of Massachusetts to build support for women's suffrage. And she's never really been involved in a reform movement before. Uh, She does this pretty much on her own. She sets out 
with a horse <laughs> and her saddlebags and some pamphlets and no itinerary and no money. And she spends four months on the road. And I like to give her example because it, she seems to me a woman, an ordinary woman who is moved to do rather extraordinary things for the cause of women's suffrage. And what I also really like about Claiborne Catlin is that even though she's just a tiny, tiny little piece in this larger story, I think she knew she was important because she wrote up a description of her four months on the road and she donated it to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe on women's history. Mm -hmm. And along with it, she donated these saddlebags that she had worn on her horse and a sash. And so it was the sense of her, um, just her bravery doing this and her sense of history. Uh, and, you know, these women who did fight for the vote were part of something larger. They knew that. Uh, they knew it was bigger than just them, but she touches my heart. And I must say that when I talk about why they marched, uh, her story is often one that readers really remember. Well, I can see why. Such an innovative advocacy campaign. I'm sure she had impact beyond being a part of this great story of history. Is it possible, you know, briefly to put these women in their historical context? In other words, what was life like for American women before they achieved the right to vote? How did their role in society gradually evolve from 1848, the time of the convention, to 1920, when the 19th Amendment was finally ratified? Can you give our listeners a sense of what it was like for women in those days? Well, you do realize that is rather a huge question and um, time period to <laughs> to cover. but. I think if we sort of take the beginning point and the end point, it would help show the contrast that happens in between. And in 1848, the year of the Seneca Falls Convention, um, the pre prevailing ideology was that women belonged in the domestic sphere, that they would be primarily defined by their roles as wives and mothers, and if they never married, then they would be dependents of the men in their family. And they often had few legal rights, certainly not the right to vote, uh, but not even the right to control their own property as married women. Or if they were working for wages, their wages, those would go to their husbands. By the time suffrage is finally won 72 years later, three generations later, that landscape has dramatically changed. There are many more opportunities for women to participate in activities beyond the domestic sphere. And of course, there are roots for this throughout the 19th century, but you really see a flowering of women's contributions to civic associations and um, all kinds of reform causes. They're not just staying at home with the children. They're out there trying to improve the world. And they also have more tools at their disposal. They have better legal rights. 
They also have much wider access to education, especially at the collegiate level, but also graduate education so that they can conceive of having careers as social workers or lawyers or doctors. And in many cases, these kind of opportunities were not available at the beginning of the suffrage movement. So what you actually can see in a capsule form is the huge changes that were occurring in American women's lives in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Having said that, a lot of women embraced those changes, but a lot of women and an awful lot of men were really scared about those changes and the assault that they seemed to pose on traditional gender roles. And so whenever I talk about the suffrage movement, I always say we have to talk about the anti-suffrage movement too, because it wouldn't have taken so long if there wasn't much opposition. And I think a lot of it really came down to fear that women's lives were changing so much. And so when women start asking for the vote, and then when it gets to look like maybe they are going to get the vote, for some people, this is almost like the last straw, you know, the sense that, oh, they're never, they'll never be home. They'll abandon their husbands and their children um, just because they're going to vote once every two years. Um, but I think we have to take those fears seriously. And learn from them, because after all, we're seeing tremendous pushback today. Yes against women in politics, uh, women who use their power to uh, make a difference in their society. So, so much to learn from history, and we're learning a great deal from you today, Susan. Was there a turning point for women's suffrage in, in the United States? And when did it become even a possibility in the minds of Americans? When did they begin to, to grasp uh, what it represented, perhaps? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about suffrage for Black women, because um, we know that, uh, recognize that Black women and other women of color had been left behind, uh, and that often comes out in as we talk about this history. So help us with that as well. Well, when I look at the long durée of the suffrage movement, it seems to me that there really is a, what I call a quickening around the years 1909-1910. And just to put that in context, um, do the math. That's 60, more than 60 years after Seneca Falls and within 10 years of when the 19th Amendment is going to pass. And at that point, um, I, I sense a certain frustration on the part of suffrage activists, especially younger ones, where they sort of look around and say, we've been at this for an awfully long time, and we've only won women's suffrage in four states. We need to pick up the pace. We need to shake things up. And so starting in around 1910, you see the suffrage movement really moving out of where it was mainly in the 19th century, which is meetings in church houses and women's parlors and taking to the streets, uh, holding mass demonstrations, standing on street corners and selling newspapers, making public displays of their support with the goal that 
it's really putting women's suffrage in everybody's face. Like it's there. You cannot ignore it. Um, and that I think was a very important step. Now it also is controversial because more traditional suffragists are not always keen about taking to the streets or picketing the White House, which Alice Paul and the National Women's Party starts doing in 1917. Um, but it does have the effect of making women's suffrage a topic that you can no longer ignore. And the suffragists wanted to make sure that people were talking about it, and they wanted to make sure that politicians who were predominantly, if not exclusively, men, had to take note of it because they're the ones who are going to be voting on things like a federal amendment. Uh, and I think it took a lot of activism and it was never a done deal, but they did manage to make it an issue of national importance. World War I, which happens in 1917, 1918, is part of that because women are able to use their contributions to the war effort to say, look what we're already contributing to society. And remember, this war is supposedly to make the world safe for democracy. How can you possibly deny women the right to vote? And arguments like that did finally hold sway. Although, again, we have to remember that once the amendment passes, Congress and is sent to the states for ratification, it really does come down to one vote in Tennessee in August of 1920, which is where the centennial date comes from. Um, in terms of the African-American women's participation in the movement, I would say they always knew they were important. It was just that the white women didn't always recognize their contributions or welcome them as openly as we would have liked them to into this movement, which really is about human rights, uh, not just about women's rights. And I think that the trick uh, for coming to a broader understanding of the suffrage movement is not to ignore or dismiss the racism of many of the white leaders, but to recognize that it's there and then also foreground the contributions of African-American women. Because if you dis dismiss the whole movement as just an example of white privilege or racism, then you have erased and marginalized the contributions of African-American women once again. And that is not a good outcome. And again, so much of what you've just talked about, we have similarities in terms of the need for advocacy and marching and inclusion, et cetera, playing out to this day. I think there's just so much to learn from all of this. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Now, when you're studying these remarkable women, were you able to notice similarities among them? Did they have certain personality traits or characteristics that made them effective? 
that made them the leaders they were and the committed leaders that they were? Well, it's both the committed leaders and it's also the followers, because I think one of the things that we need to remember is that this is a social movement. And by the 1910s, it's a mass movement. So you have a whole range of people who have, for various reasons, decided to sign on. And I think that in some ways, the the comparable moment for second wave feminism is what is often called the click moment, when all of a sudden a woman thinks, that's wrong, or I'm going to fight that, or I'm going to do something about that. And I have a sense that most of these women had a moment like that, where they just looked at their world and said, this doesn't make any sense that women are not being treated equally with men. And I am going to try to do something about that. And then, of course, what's fascinating is to see those who really are just the foot soldiers, the ones who hand out leaflets and maybe march in a parade or try to organize voters in in their precinct, and those who really dedicate their whole lives to um, to the movement and to making it happen. And what I just find fascinating as I study it is just the range of women that I meet. Uh, And I really do feel like I'm meeting them when I encounter them in the archives and I hear their stories. And it just reminds me of the nitty gritty work of social change, of what it takes, how many people, both leaders and followers, it takes to make change happen. Uh, and I think that the suffrage movement is a, is a perfect example of that. And I think it is also a way of encouraging people to think more broadly about the contributions that women have made to American society, not just getting the vote, but much beyond that. Uh, there's a lot of history out there, uh, and women are very much part of it. Um, of course, this is what I do for a living as a women's historian, trying to tell these stories, but they're important to our national story. And the women's suffrage movement is a very much part of that larger national story. Certainly very important. And as you talk about that click moment, I can imagine listeners thinking about click moments today not just for women in the United States, but the world over that really persuaded large numbers all of a sudden to say, why not? It's time. Or I've had enough. I've had enough. Exactly. You talked about what it was like as you were marveling over these women that you've come to know, or as you said, that you met. I love that. The fact that you were meeting them as you were doing your research. Were there big surprises for you in any of those meetings? I think for me, one of the biggest surprises and one of the things that made doing this research such fun is that I think people have an image of suffragists as being, oh, kind of grim, battle axes, dressed in black, serious. Um, no fun to be with, just always their eye on getting the vote and um, you know, not, not much fun to be around. And what I was so tickled to discover is that these women had a real sense of humor. Uh, and 
some of my favorite uh, aspects of suffrage research are are finding the songs that poked fun at the men's reasons for not giving the women the vote or the valentines or the poems or the plays that women wrote. They had a sense of humor as well as this commitment to getting women the vote. And also, I think it it also plays into something that I think was really one of the, the most profound things that that I learned from my research as I was trying to recreate what it was really like for people to be in the suffrage movement, which is how personally satisfying it was for these women to be part of a larger cause. They made friends. They felt like they were doing something useful. It was all part of this sense of feeling like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And I think it made an enormous difference to these women. And while we can't really say specifically, if we look at a woman's career after 1920, oh, she was changed by being in the suffrage movement, it just makes sense that someone who's been through this experience has put herself on the line. And remember that some of these suffragists literally put their lives on the line because they go on hunger strikes when they're imprisoned. That changes a person. It gives them the sense of feeling part of something larger and bigger and feeling part of a women's cause. Uh, And to me, that is one of the most important uh, takeaways of the suffrage movement and why I hope we realize that it didn't just end in 1920. Um, that these feelings and these networks and these friendships would have continued on past 1920. And the other reason for taking that perspective, sort of the thinking of it as the long women's suffrage movement, is that for certain women, especially African-American women, 1920 was not a milestone. Most African-American women in 1920 still lived in the American South, where their voting rights, even though they were supposedly guaranteed by the 19th Amendment, were restricted by Jim Crow segregation. So for African-American women, it's really the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, rather than the 19th Amendment, that is, is the key one. And again, I think that just makes me want to put the suffrage movement into this larger perspective about working for progressive social change, working for feminism. What the suffrage movement was doing, it didn't end in 1920. It didn't end in the 1970s. It's still going on now. Uh, It's all part of this one larger story. Oh, that's so beautifully said. You know, I often say that we're all still on the journey for women's rights the world over, only we're in different places on the road some ahead, some farther behind, but we're still journeying. And that's why I think we have so much to learn from what you're telling us today, from your work and from women's history. And to that point, the women that you've researched and have come to meet and know through your research employ strategies. You've talked about some of those strategies. Do you think any of those are lessons still to be learned by women activists today? Oh, for sure. Uh, and I think 
one of the most obvious is branding. Um, and the suffragists had, they had their own colors, their colors, mm-hmm. were purple and gold and white. The anti-suffragists had their color too. That was red. And anytime there would be a suffrage event, you would see those colors. And when I look out at the pictures of the sea of pink pussy hats, mm-hmm. uh, at the women's marches in 2017, I see the same thing happening. It's that sense of making a statement uh, through what you're wearing. Uh, that's kind of a, a flip response. Um, but I think that one of the things that I really learned from the suffrage movement is that you have to have multiple strategies. And if I can just digress a little bit about suffrage history at the very end, and you, I think you'll see its application to the present. Uh, the suffrage movement was split uh, in the in its last decade between those who, like Carrie Chapman Catt, who were basically working through the system, trying to lobby politicians, trying to get laws passed, get referendum on state ballots, and things like that. In opposition or alongside to them were the more radical militants like Alice Paul and the National Women's Party, who were picketing the White House in 1917 and getting themselves arrested and going on hunger strikes. And they were quite impatient with the more conservative women. Um, And the conservative women were quite upset at the radical women because they thought they were hurting each other's cause. Mm But in retrospect, it's clear that the movement needed both. It needed those who are working within the system and doing the kind of scut work of lobbying and following up. But it also needed the public displays that got people's attention. And I think that is a perfect, you know, dual strategy for any kind of movement that's working for social change today. You need to be out there in the streets. You need to be getting people's attention. You need to be having the media talk about you. But that's not enough. That's not going to get things done. You need to also be there in your organizations and doing your networking and reaching out to women and men, trying to build coalitions to try and Pass legislation, and each is dependent on the other. Uh, they may not always be speaking to each other. They certainly weren't by the end of the suffrage movement. But each, I think, needs each other. And I think that's one of the things that that I really took away from studying what it took to finally get this amendment passed. And again, I just remind listeners that it took. 72 years of agitation before women got the vote. And it really did come down to one person in Tennessee in 1920. Now, I don't think that if that hadn't hadn't passed Tennessee, women would still be voteless. At least I hope not. Um, but I think it does show how how long and committed a struggle it was. So well said. And what a perfect example of uh, 
the components of activism, because those debates are clearly still going on today in terms of what's most effective. And as you said, we should learn that both had their place. It's a wonderful uh, reminder. Unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time and we could go on for hours and hours. It's just fascinating to listen to you. But given what we've been talking about in terms of the journey continuing for equal rights for women, that fight is still going on today. What makes you optimistic? Uh, what gives you hope? Well, I, I think I would point to my experience voting in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to physically go into a ballot box um, and to a voting place and, and cast my ballot. I voted absentee. But I found when I was doing that, that I just felt overwhelmed by this sense of being part of a larger movement. That when I was filling out my ballot, I was standing on the shoulders of all those who had come before me, who had fought for voting rights for women, for African Americans, for all the groups that have been disfranchised. And it was that sense of optimism, which is tempered by the challenges still to voting rights, but it gave me a sense of being part of something larger and that we're in it for the long haul and that we just need to keep going forward because it's important, the cause is important, but we're not alone and that we really are standing on the shoulders of those who have come before. What an inspiring conclusion to this conversation. Thank you so much, Susan Ware. I hope our listeners will read your book, Why They Marched, so they can learn so much more than we had time for today. But thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always great to hear fresh perspectives on women's history. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, it's good to shift focus and think about the ordinary women who did what they could to make a difference. For example, one day in 1913, Caitlin decided to ride her horse across Massachusetts to bring attention to women's suffrage and spent four months doing so. Second, women's struggle for voting rights didn't end when the 19th Amendment passed. It wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that Black women and other women of color had their right to vote protected under law. Finally, the suffragists of yesterday have lessons that women's movements can still learn today. Those early activists were very aware of branding, says Susan Ware. They always wore white to stand out, and they knew they had to use multiple strategies and tactics because they were in the fight for the long haul. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.